often when you say hello to somebody, you don't expect them to say, I'm lonely or, you know, I'm, I'm isolated, you know. I think that's where the problem begins. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Dixon Shibanda is a psychiatrist and researcher at the University of Zimbabwe. In today's show, he and other health experts talk about the epidemic of loneliness. Loneliness can affect anyone, man or woman, elderly or young, American or African. In our modern age where tweets replace conversation, how can we find a way to address loneliness and mitigate its effects? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Spotlight Health. The crises of loneliness and social isolation could pose as grave a threat to public health as obesity or substance abuse. More people are reporting they're lonely, and scientists now know the regions of the brain that respond to loneliness. Lonely people are more likely to become sick, experience cognitive decline, and die early. NPR reports the health threat of loneliness in older adults is similar to that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Around the globe, many are living with sparse human contact. A phone call with a healthcare worker may be someone's sole social connection for the week. How will this crisis affect our health and social service systems? And does social media drive loneliness or help cure it? Dixon Shibanda is joined on stage by neuroscience and psychology professor Julianne Holt Lundsted and geriatrician Carla Parisi Noto. Katie Hafner moderates the conversation. She's a healthcare writer for the New York Times and in 2016 wrote an investigative article about loneliness. Here's Hafner. This is not going to be a um, happy, uplifting session. Uh, there is no joy in Mudville this morning. If you. If you're looking for yucks, this is not the place. Um, it's a very profound, and I have to say, it's a surprising topic. It was to me. I'll tell you a little bit about how I started on the story. Uh, I decided to write the story. I pitched it to my editors at the Times. They loved the idea, and it turns out that the UK is far ahead of the US in dealing with this problem of loneliness. Among the aging, I mean, loneliness is a problem that cuts across generations, of course, but I really focused on, on the elderly population because it is such a quiet devastation. Loneliness is something that Emily Dickinson called the horror not to be surveyed, and if anyone should know about that, it would be Emily Dickinson. Um, so one of the things I found, um, the UK has many, many programs in place. And before I introduce um, our panelists, I thought I would um, just read the lead of the story that I wrote. Um, I went uh, to the UK, did a lot of reporting there on the ground, and one of the things I did was go up to Blackpool, England, which is north of Liverpool. It's one of these sort of seedy, sort of seaside resorts gone to, gone to seed, really, and they had this call-in center. It's a 24-7 call-in center called The Silver Line, and I listened in. They let me listen into these calls coming in from um, very elderly people. And I it was amazing. Uh, the, these really patient people taking the calls just would stay on for as long as these people wanted to stay on. So um, here's how it, uh, the story started. <clears throat> 
The woman on the other end of the phone spoke lightheartedly of spring and of her 81st birthday the previous week. Who did you celebrate with, Beryl? asked Allison, whose job was to offer a kind ear. No one, I... And with that, Beryl's cheer turned to despair. Her voice began to quaver as she acknowledged that she had been alone at home, not just on her birthday, but for days and days. The telephone conversation was the first time she had spoken in more than a week. Uh, let's uh, dive right in. And I really have always been curious, and I think when I was reporting the story, I did not ask you two, Julianne and Carla, what on earth possessed you <laughs> to, you, Julianne especially, to start uh, researching this topic? Uh, I originally, uh, my training is in health psychology, and my original work was on stress and health. And I did a lot of research uh, in a experimental lab, a psychophysiology lab, where we would bring people into a lab and stress them out and um, <laughs> do very creative things um, to create stress in a lab. And then we would uh, measure their physiological responses. Um, and you know, the idea was to uh, get uh, an indication of uh, um, how this is affecting their um, health-relevant indicators. And what we found was that uh, social support um, and relationships had a profound impact on this. And, and so it kind of went from stress to um, social support and how relationships can either help us um, cope with stress or can actually be sources of stress. Um, and then this evolved into really uh, looking and, and really being primarily interested in the overall effects of social relationships um, because they do have a profound effect on um, health, well-being, and even longevity, irrespective of stress. Um, so that's, that's just part of it. But um, relationships uh, and health, that's kind of the journey it, it took. And Carla, you have published one of the few, if not the only, truly medical. Tell us about that paper. Yeah, so um, what, was, what was interesting, and I've said this a lot recently, is that there's, there's actually a decent amount of work in this area in loneliness. Um, and it's becoming even more so, I think, as a, the dem demography is changing around the world, clearly, with all of us aging as we speak. Um, and uh, there's a lot of work, but none of that was really in the medical literature. And so my research in 2012, which really followed 1,600 people out of a national study called the Health and Retirement Study, we followed them over six years to really see whether loneliness posed a risk to death and loss of independence. As a geriatrician, my main focus um, is really what keeps people independent, what keeps people at home, if that's their goal. Um, and so my study really looked at, at, at those risk factors. Um, and it was in the medical journal, which was the first time really telling physicians and other healthcare providers this isn't something just relegated to the social sciences fields. We actually have to pay attention to this in terms of a real public health threat. And your findings were? And we're, my findings were that loneliness um, is an independent predictor of functional decline. So uh, by a close to 60% increased risk of functional decline and a 45% increased risk of death just solely by being alone, or sorry, by, by feeling lonely. And that means, when we mean independent, it means that we are not, uh, we are ignoring or 
that it excludes depression and excludes the typical risk factors. And let's do some definition clarity here. We have loneliness and then there's social isolation. Um, who wants to take on that? Yeah, so, so I would say that this is a really important thing. What you'll notice in the literature, whether it's in the public media or in papers, the, the terms are often used interchangeably, but I think this correlates a lot with what both of my colleagues' works are doing, is that loneliness is really the subjective feeling of being alone. So it's really what I experience. You cannot tell me if I feel lonely. I may look lonely. But, um, but it really depends on what's going on in, inside of me. And that's in contrast to social isolation, which is something that's quantifiable, so the number of relationships and contacts that someone has. And the reason that's important, again, is how we target interventions and how we might want to help people. So it may be that I'm surrounded by people in this room and still have a sense of loneliness, so putting me in a room is not necessarily going to help. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Well, um, so... As far as um, understanding the the potential um, impact, so as Carla was mentioning, there's the distinction between um, loneliness and social isolation. So I did a, a meta-analysis looking at the effects of these. A meta-analysis is, in essence, gathering and synthesizing all of the published literature on this. So you're combining the data from multiple studies. So we combine the data from 70 separate studies. Um, so it included over 3.4 million participants. Um, and this included social isolation, loneliness, and living alone. And all of them significantly predicted mortality. And so it's important to recognize that, that it's not a one or the other. And, and if you're only looking at one, you're potentially missing risk from the other. The other thing I could add is that um, on the flip side, that there is protection associated with being socially connected. What does protection mean? Protection, um, lower risk. Um, so people uh, live longer um, and have healthier uh, trajectories. And um, so uh, this can include things like the size of one's social network, the extent to which they are involved and participate in a social network, the extent to which they perceive social support. So whether it's actually support they receive or um, the perception that it's available if needed. Uh, and, and then also um, the, the quality of these relationships. And in another meta-analysis, we found that all of these are associated with longevity. And so it is important to consider all of these indicators of social connection, or on the flip side, lack of social connection. Is this surprising? To, it was so surprising to me when I was doing the story. Is it, does it, is it surprising to everyone? Yeah. Um, they, tell me, there's, um, there's a uh, researcher at the University of Chicago who... Wait, what's so funny? <laughs> What? <laughs> oh, people said We're no. Choir here. <laughs> you guys are not surprised by this. My goodness gracious! So, are you all just complete pessimists? And, uh, well, good. That's good to know that the, that the tenor of the, that where we're headed here. So um, tell me if this surprises you, too. So John Cacioppo at the um, University of Chicago, whom I'm sure you know, has done research that shows that loneliness is an aversive signal, much like 
thirst, hunger, or pain. And that, oh, everyone, no one's surprised. <laughs> well, I can't wait until we get on to the solutions <laughs> section. Of, uh, and um, there's been a, some research, some of the first research done at, um, done at MIT by a, a young researcher named Kay Tai, who's wonderful, who found that mice, that when mice were housed together, um, dopamine, and whatever else they do when they're housed together, that uh, <laughs> dopamine neurons um, were relatively inactive, but after the mice were isolated for a short period, period, the activity in those neurons surged when the mice were reunited with other mice, which I thought was actually very, maybe not surprising, but very interesting. <laughs> and and uh, so now that we've sort of, would you say we've laid the foundation of, of sort of the, the danger um, of, of this problem, and I'd really like to get to what, you know, what we've seen as some of the solutions that have that have started coming along. And as I have said, the US is woefully behind in this. And what I'd like to do in, in the next you know, 30 minutes is solve it. Um, and for, in the US, I mean, really, we've got to get our act together um, for how we deal with this problem. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, the epidemic of loneliness. If you're curious to read more about loneliness, including Katie Hafner's article in the New York Times, head to our website. There, you'll find a link to her piece and other resources our panelists touch on. It's also in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Here's Katie Hafner. Dixon, tell us about the friendship benches. Sure. Um, before I talk about the friendship bench, maybe I should just um, give you my perspective. You know, often when you say hello to somebody, you don't expect them to say, I'm lonely or, you know, I'm, I'm isolated. You know, I think that's where the problem begins. You know, we, we are not comfortable with um, statements that are emotionally loaded. You know, and um, so the key problem here is how do, you, how do you undo that? You know, how do we all become comfortable with that which is uncomfortable? You know, because as human beings, naturally, we want that which is comfortable. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science. Um, but, you know, as we interact um, on a daily basis, I think it's, it's all about finding that equilibrium. And that's essentially what our work on the friendship bench is all about. I mean, it's, again, it's not rocket science. It's just a bench with a grandmother, you know? Um, but a I think- grandmother, tell us about the grandmother. Sure, so, so these grandmothers um, deliver, essentially it's a, it's a CBT-based uh, intervention, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but over the years, we've obviously modified it, you know, to, to suit our cultural sort of context. And we've um, identified more appropriate sort of local idioms of distress. And we've come up with a mental health lexicon that we use in our own sort of uh, setting. 
which really sort of um, uh, connects with the people. Because a lot of the terms that we use in, uh, you know, in the biomedical or Western uh, sort of um, field uh, just don't gel with, with African folks. They, they ju it just doesn't work you know, to walk up to somebody and say, you know, you're depressed. You know, they'll probably think you're nuts, you know, although they have the symptoms of depression, you know. And so we've had to find words that are more appropriate. For instance, it's more appropriate in Africa for someone who's depressed to say they are thinking too much. You know, in my, in my country, it would be a word called kufungisisa, you know. Um, so it's finding the words that people can identify with and then working around those words. <coughs> And that's essentially what the Friendship Bench is, is about. I mean, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, obviously, I can talk a lot more about that. Yeah. If I can add, I think um, you touched on some really important, important things. And I, what I'll add is not only is there a stigma around talking about loneliness, but the second thing that underlies a lot of this, particularly in the United States, is that the large degree of ageism that we have. And so we, we, we want to ignore older people. Um, there's, I've been in hospitals where the older adults get sent to a different ward because they're not considered to be good teaching cases for students. Really? Um, yes. And, um, and so you have those sort of things. So not only are we not wanting to teach medical students and our future um, healthcare providers about older adults, but then we don't want to talk about what it looks like to not age successfully. We only want to hear about healthy aging. So now you have someone who is older and they're feeling lonely, why would they want to talk about that? And I think, as you said, some people do not identify with the word lonely. So I have had patients who, if I ask them, they will say, no, I don't feel lonely. But if I ask them from what, we, what is often used, something called the three-item loneliness questionnaire, we, I ask someone, do you feel left out? Do you feel isolated? And do you lack companionship? Suddenly, the answers are yes, when those are actually the signs of loneliness. So how do we get around it, but then also how do we start becoming comfortable so that someone can come to their healthcare provider and say, you know, Dr. Pericinoto, I'm actually feeling incredibly lonely. And that should be a red flag for me, like forget their blood pressure and, and cholesterol, which is super boring. Um, and, um, and instead, let's actually talk about what's actually really affecting your everyday life. Well, and I guess I can add also is that um, while this is obviously an important issue among older adults, we need to acknowledge that it's not isolated to just older adults. And indeed, our research shows that um, you see it across the age spectrum. In fact, we find no effect of age um, in one meta-analysis. And in the second one, we actually find a stronger effect among those who are under 65 relative to those who are older, over 65. And so we can all benefit from, from this. Um, and I think we all, to a, a certain extent, have this stigma associated with, with yeah. uh, that. And, and I think that's part of the reason why I also prefer to focus on um, the potential health benefits of being socially connected because that's something that we can all aspire to um, rather than um, admitting that we have some kind of deficit uh, which can be um, stigmatizing. Uh, and, and so then that can have a, a broader uh, impact on, on uh, the population um, rather than focusing on um, you know, an isolated end of the spectrum. Well, I'll ask the question that I'm sure will be asked by the audience, so I might as well just ask it. Um, this whole question of social media and how we're more connected than ever but more isolated than ever, do you subscribe to that? What, is your, what are your thoughts on that, all three of you? I'd like to know. 
Well, I can first tell you, as far as what the data says, um, so as I mentioned, uh, I, I did an, another meta-analysis that had over, well, it had 148 different studies. Um, <clears throat> but these studies follow people, they, they look at whether they're lonely, isolated, you know, social network size, et cetera, at one point in time, and then follow them over years, often decades. Most of these studies were done or started prior to the time when social media was widely used. So as far as the, you know, the broader scope of the literature, I think that question is still open um, in, in terms of, of where the data stands. Uh, however, we do see some uh, indicators that uh, we are becoming more isolated as a population. Um, so in the U.S., uh, there has been a significant increase in um, the number of people who are reporting significant loneliness, as Carla's work has shown. Uh, but since 1985, there's been a one-third reduction in the size of people's social networks. Um, we now have... Uh, the lowest rate of married adults in the U.S. in recorded history. Household size has decreased. Um, there's an increasing rate of childlessness. When you take that and put that together with an increasing aging population, that would indicate that um, there are going to be less uh, familial resources to draw upon in older age. Um, so we see these trends of people... Um, becoming more socially isolated over the last few decades. And we also see that technology um, is now the primary means of, of communicating socially. Now, what we don't know is the direction of that effect. Is it that because we're becoming more isolated that people are turning to technology because they're craving that connection, as John Cassiopo talks about, that, that need to connect um, or is it that because we are seeing what others are doing online, we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm covered, <laughs> and, and don't actually um, in, you know, interact, and that becomes a replacement, and so it's, it's leading to um, greater isolation. Dixon? Yeah, so I think um, what we've found in our work is that people are less likely to use, when people are lonely, they are less likely to use technology to address that loneliness. Because, mm. you know, if you think about it, the resources are out there if you're lonely, isn't it? You can get onto your mobile phone, you can find solutions. But people who are lonely inherently have other mental health issues. You know, um, they may lack motivation, you know, that drive, and I think there, there are some studies that actually show that, you know, technology itself does not guarantee that um, it will it'll enable you to achieve uh, that, out, that, that the outcome you're, you're looking at in terms of making you happy, you know. Um, so it's, it's more about that motivation. Is it, is it really there, that motivation to use technology um, to, to make you happy? And what we've found on our work on the Friendship Bench is that initial first session with a grandmother, that contact with a human being is critical because that then sets, you know, the sort of the platform for that person to then go out there and use that technology to actually make them happy. So, um, so our, our clinical <coughs> trial, um, which is published in, uh, in JAMA, shows that first session with a grandmother um, 
improves a person's ability to use technology to make them happy, as opposed to just giving people technology. So I think what, what our study shows is that human contact is key. You know, um, yes, we can leverage technology, but to some extent that, that the power of human contact cannot be underestimated, no matter how technologically advanced we become. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Another show you might be interested in, the opioid tsunami. The opioid crisis has been called the most perilous drug crisis ever, and it was generated in the healthcare system. Overdose deaths in the U.S. have quadrupled since 1999. What can be done to protect the population from misuse? Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts. Here's the rest of our featured conversation. Dr. Carla Purisinoto. So part of my work as a geriatrician is that I make, um, I make house calls to homebound adults. I live in San Francisco. San Francisco is a city of hills and stairs. And so many of my older adults are homebound literally because of the stairs in the home. Uh, they can get around inside of the apartment, but beyond that, they can't. And though we have a lot of um, new technology and resources for people, there is that craving of connection. So um, I, we're struggling as a team as we're trying to grow our program because there's certainly much more need in terms of people needing uh, physician home visits than what we can supply. And we are experimenting with the use of technology and telehealth. But as you said, I've offered this service and it's like, wait a second, this is instead of you coming to see me, why would I do that? Um, and so that's the struggle that we're seeing. And I know, um, don't tell Medicare, no, but um, I know that when I go see patients, it is often my visit, not my checking the blood pressure and these things that's actually having an effect. It may be both of those things. And I think that's where we are with, with, the, with the research and where do we move things forward. And I'll say that just on a personal note, it's very interesting that I'm not on Facebook. I haven't been. I'm like the last person holding out, I think, in the world. But what I'll say about that is that it's just not a one-size-fits-all when we start talking about intervention. So it doesn't work for me. It works great for my sister. Um, she doesn't like that she has to call me to tell me what's going on in her life. She wants me to look online. Um, but um, it's just that's just the way how we try to figure out how to, how to connect with each other. But um, So it's thinking there are absolutely ways to leverage technology, and it's going to work for some people but not for everyone. So how do we work with that? Okay, I'm going to um, open it to questions. We only have 20 minutes to solve this problem. No pressure. Um, yes, right, right here. Hi, thanks so much. This is a fantastic panel. Um, I'm Seth Cochran, and I've just founded a charity um, focused on elder abuse, uh, elderabuse.org. And our, what we're trying to do is, 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 is the first charity sort of advocating to the public. And mm -hmm. loneliness and isolation is a major you know, risk, factor. risk factor. And I just wondered if you could talk about the research or, or any sort of, you know, academic studies that link this, you know, these some loneliness and isolation specifically to financial exploitation or, or elder abuse. So I, I, I'll say that I don't know the specific research. I know that um, I was just speaking at another conference where this came up quite a bit. Um, we know that th I think there's a couple things to think ways to think about loneliness and why it places us as risk. Um, 
So the financial exploita exploitation piece, I think we can think about it theoretically um, in that um, we all know that advanced care planning or having a power of attorney is incredibly important, yet the majority of adults don't have this. And so you have someone who may be lonely and isolated, but they don't have those documents to protect themselves, then they're at greater risk for exploitation. I've seen that time and time again in my practice, um, the, the elder abuse that is either because they don't have those paperwork set up and so they're at risk, and or it's the phone scans because someone's at loan and just wants the phone call. I put my patients on do not call list and even still um, it's a problem. So I don't know the direct research, but we're heading there because we know it's a huge risk. Thank you, this is a wonderful panel. My name's David, I'm a primary care physician. I'm also um, a dad who has two little kids and I occasionally get lonely even though I'm very socially connected, or I mm -hmm. think I am. Um, and my question is about gender. And I know there was a Boston Globe article that came out recently sort of highlighting about sort of men in particular uh, in sort of middle age and how men relate to each other differently uh, from growing up and teams and sports. And I'm curious if your research or any of the things you found have found differences between men and women. So I, I can just start by saying, um, first of all, uh, when we look across all of the data, uh, it affects men and women equally. So as far as the effect of it, right? Um, and, and that makes sense that if we are, um, if this is, you know, adaptive, uh, and so as John Cassiopo has, has argued, that to connect to others uh, is a biological need. Um, and it ties back to the idea of being part of a group is adaptive to survival, whether it be resources, um, uh, protection from predators, all these kinds of things. It's very adaptive to be around others. Um, and so we don't find any difference between that. However, when it comes to the experience, um, that we uh, do find some differences. So for instance, in terms of um, the social support literature, um, women tend to prefer, and this is on average, of course, we're not talking about any one individual male or individual mm. female, um, but on average, uh, women tend to prefer emotional support. Um, men tend to prefer um, and offer uh, tangible support, meaning uh, women like to um, get uh, um, some sense of uh, understanding about um, what problems they may be having, whereas men want to, to solve the problem. Um, <laughs> um, and, and again, this is on, on average. Um, but that's just you know, within the, the um, you know, kind of the, the social support literature. Um, however, I think it was your, your work um, or, uh, that you covered in the UK where they talked about how um, men prefer to um, be shoulder to shoulder yeah, versus face a, to face. So just quickly, uh, one thing, and you can read about it in the story, there's this thing called men's sheds. Um, and uh, it started in Australia. And the idea is that men don't talk face to face. They talk while they're doing something shoulder to shoulder. And uh, so there's been this huge movement, which has not made it to the United States. Um, of these men's sheds, where meaning that they go and they do woodworking together, and they and and it's an it's a powerful, powerful, profound part of the solution. Um, interestingly, so I'm curious um, if you've been looking at these cuddle therapy and uh, like they're, they're cuddle parlors. Yeah, I'm curious what, what your reaction, and one, the reason this came to my attention is the NHS in the UK had identified loneliness and isolation as probably their biggest health problem that they had to provide 
um, in, uh, coverage for as far as their an expense. And so these cuddle lounges and, and yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, relationship that they've identified. So I'm moving so, to the UK. No. <laughs> so um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll mention something about that. So um, I've done some studies looking at the neuropeptide oxytocin. Um, and so um, for those of you who may be less familiar with it, first of all, it's not OxyContin, it's OxyTocin. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's often been dubbed the cuddle hormone, the love hormone, um, but really it's, it's a hormone that has been primarily identified with um, pregnancy and lactation, uh, but it's been associated with social bonding, um, but also stress regulation. And uh, what we find is with physical touch, hugging, holding hands, um, that there's a release in oxytocin. Oxytocin has also been linked to some health outcomes as well. Uh, I did one intervention where we randomly assigned couples to do couples massages uh, three times a week uh, for a month um, and then control couples that just went about their everyday lives. Um, and we found uh, significant increases in the, um, in, in the couples who were practicing this um, and uh, in, in men, uh, decreases in blood pressure. However, there have been other studies where they use a massage therapist. And while they find short-term uh, changes, like 15 minutes, uh, it's not sustained. Um, whereas with an intimate partner, um, that those were sustained. So it suggests that there might be, if it's done in, in a setting with strangers, um, whatever benefit there might be might be very short-lived. Good morning. Uh, is, do you find loneliness more frequent in the United States versus other countries? So I'll tell you um, that the, the biggest studies are in the United States and then um, in the UK. Um, so here, our prevalence of loneliness in the research that I did was 43% in people over age 60, so pretty high. In the UK, the studies that have been there, it's been actually a little bit lower, so around 30%, but they also, they also the way they did their prevalence studies is also looking at severity. So overall, loneliness being about 30% and severe loneliness in terms of all the time every day, around 5%. Um, but the challenge in this area is that it's not studied in a lot of places. Um, the other challenge and why we were talking a lot about definitions is how we're measuring it has been variable and it makes it a little bit hard to look at cross-national comparisons. Maybe I could just add on to that as well um, about loneliness. Um, what we find in our work is that it correlates a lot with, uh, with depression. Um, and, and sometimes it's kind of difficult to, to tease out and differentiate between, between the two. You know, um, when we look at um, some of the, the screening tools that we use in our work, we find that most people who report feeling lonely or whether it's subjective or objective, you know, also show a lot of symptoms suggestive of, you know, depression, you know. Um, and so often targeting the depression itself does, can help, although you can get situations where loneliness presents, you know, in isolation as, uh, you know, 
And I'll add that in our, in, um, in our study, it was actually the majority of people were not depressed who were lonely. So probably some contextual differences. Well, and I'll just add to that, um, as far as the epidemiological literature that has established the health importance of this, because depression has such an important impact on health, it was important to distinguish between those two. And so the majority of epidemiological studies uh, control for depression. So the effects that uh, you hear about are over and above any health effects of depression. I, I, I just want to go back to the comment about the bench. I was saying I'm a primary care doctor for the underserved, and so I can absolutely attest to this epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. Oftentimes my visit is a therapeutic yes. touch, and at the same time, I'm finding myself really resisting this need to medicalize it because it really is so rampant. And just wanted to ask you, what are the public health, um, community development, urban planning type measures that we can make that might have a bigger impact? What are the policies that we need to pursue to try to go a little bit upstream? I would, I would start by saying, I think, I think you're right, Allison, we work in the same setting, so we probably encounter a lot of the same, same people. Um, and there's a couple things. One, I actually do think that identifying it and starting to talk about it is, is actually one of the first things, because if we don't know how big of a problem it is, it's hard to figure out what the policy is about it. The, the two other areas I would think about, so if you think about how to address loneliness, it's trying to figure out, is it someone intrinsically in terms of their stress response and how they're responding to their social environment? Is it not having access to social connections or is it a way to need to increase social, social connections? Um, San Francisco has a particularly large housing, um, housing problem. Um, some of the newer senior buildings, and there's one in my neighborhood in the Bayview where a lot of the social planning is really around creating spaces within the buildings for, for socialization. So it's not just everyone goes into their room and that's it. So how do we create spaces? But then again, looking at models in the United Kingdom or in Europe overall where you're having a mix in both older and younger adults. The third thing I would say in terms of policy is let's think a little bit differently. Yes, we don't want to medicalize it completely. At the same time, if it is having effects on our health, we need to think about what are the other ways to do. So um, there's a project going on at Curry Senior Center, which is downtown San Francisco, looking at marginally housed and homeless older adults and looking at pairing them with peers. And what we're finding preliminarily is that many of these folks have, have access and are getting public resources in terms of they have a case manager, they have Meals on Wheels, they have everything what, what, what that they need, theoretically, but they're still feeling very disconnected. So is there a way to look at that? I also think about in-home support services and the way that we get these for uh, low-income seniors now is that they have to have a limitation with an activity of daily living to get services or a medical condition. But should we thinking about expanding access to these programs for interventions such as loneliness? Well, and I'll just add, um, you know, you mentioned public health and um, an acknowledgement. Um, you talked about that. The last time I looked, it was a few weeks ago, so things could have changed, um, and maybe a, a whole month, I don't know. Um, but the last time I checked on the CDC website under social determinants of health, social relationships were not listed. And so that I, I see as, as a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. Uh, and indeed, there are other things that are kind of peripherally related, but the fact that it's not being acknowledged at um, kind of a, an institutional level um, is uh, something we need to address. Uh, now, uh, the, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who was here and, and spoke, certainly um, was interested in considering this as part of an emotional well-being initiative, um, but it's unclear at this point what that might take um, uh, with all of the changes that are going on now. So, unfortunately, I think we only have time for maybe a couple more questions. Yes. 
Um, I was reading that millennials or even um, younger people are feeling more socially isolated because they don't believe in telephones. They don't want to call someone. They want to be text. And their life is so busy with work that they only have time to text, and that is creating uh, loneliness. Even finding someone they don't call or, or whatever, they have an app if they're at a place, and if they see someone that's picture, they can just click on it. So how is this going to affect loneliness and isolation among younger people? I'd say that is a huge question that we absolutely need to do systematic research on. I think it's a huge, th there's a lot of things, um, in ter I'm curious also as a geriatrician because I see a lot of cognitive impairment, I'm actually very interested in how all of our relationships and cognition are going to change because I mean who remembers numbers or anything anymore, you look it up all, all on your phone and so even our working memory and how we retain information is changing so how our generation experiences dementia and cognitive impairment is probably going to change over the next several decades. And you're right, this idea of social connections and how people are relating, it's concerning, but it's not being looked at or at least not published yet. So we should all be worried. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have kids yet. I'm wondering whether it's the right thing. <laughs>